Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. If you are a regular listener of Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, you're likely open to being troubled and haunted by all that might be screaming out for our attention in these difficult times. And we need allies for this kind of work. And they are here, folks. Allies are everywhere. In fact, these kinds of conversations are ways in which we can come together know one another, sense each other's presence and strength. And I have two powerful allies here with us today. And if I may begin our conversation by sharing an excerpt from one of Dr. James Perkinson's most recent essays where he says, I confess deep concern. The country is in the dock. The court today is the entire planet. Earth herself as prosecutor cutorial presence, calling every community of suffering to speak. That presumption is supremacy, white at its core, vitriolic in its roar, neo-fascist in its most outrageous spore, but rampaging, relentless, and unconfessed under the floor of a now globalized lifestyle, taking the middle-class American dream as its theme, Hollywood as its norm, corn syrup as its elixir of choice and our species unquestionable right to eat mine slice dice bend and break everything else as its bottom line stance toward an entire biosphere now an irrepressible revolt asserting otherwise and the deep question is whether we can listen and hear Harvey and Irma are not just devastation, they are speech. The preeminent racism of the hour, the supremacy under the supremacy, some of us so readily decry, is species-wide and ubiquitously modern. Most of us living industrial and high-tech, and most of those colonized to aspire to such, though it remains out of reach, are racist to the core in our conviction that our human race is preeminent and central to the entire planetary roar of living. Trump is a mirror for an entire 500-year regime of history. It is the whole of white society and white identity and white business as usual, organized as suburban dwelling and corporate profiteering and high-tech warmongering that peers back when we look with supposed disdain at the orange-headed buffoonery. These are the words of Dr. James Perkinson in his moving September 18th Radical Discipleship Declaration. Dr. James W. Perkinson is a longtime activist, educator, artist from inner city Detroit, currently teaching as professor of social ethics at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary and lecturing in intercultural communication studies at the University of Oakland, Michigan. He holds a PhD in theology, but focused broadly on history of religions from the University of Chicago. He's the author of White Theology, Outing Supremacy in Modernity, as well as Shamanism, Racism, and Hip-Hop Culture, Essays on White Supremacy and Black Subversion, and Messianism Against Christology, Resistance Movements, Folk Art, and Empire, as well as a book of poetry entitled Dreaming 
Moorish. Dr. Perkinson has written extensively in both academic and popular journals on questions of race, class, and colonialism in connection with religion and urban culture, and he speaks on a wide variety of topics related to these interests. So welcome, Dr. Perkinson. It's an honor to have you here with us today. It's an honor to be invited. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you. I am also delighted that we have our co-host, Dr. Bayo Okomolafe, here with us for this important conversation. Bayo's work was featured in a hugely popular three-part series on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio in January of 2017. Bayo was also featured the featuring uh, the featured contributing author for the free online publication, Revolutionary Wellness Magazine, that you can find at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. And I'm currently participating in Bayo's life-changing course called We Will Dance with Mountains, which, to be perfectly honest, is one of the most extraordinary and transformative course experiences I've ever had in my life. And if you've ever had the, if you have the opportunity to take a class with bio, I recommend that you take it and be prepared to be altered. And if you would like to find out more, you can go to bioecomolafe.net backslash course. So thank you, dear bio, for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm blushing. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> Jim and um, Bio, I wonder if we could begin by exploring what Jim calls the preeminent racism of the hour, the supremacy under the supremacy, because this essay is naming something that's so ubiquitous in our society, society that I think most modern Western white people like myself really have no clue that white normativity even exists and that it is such a profound fueling force for the the conditions that we are witnessing globally today. I was wondering if we can if you can help us get a glimpse of this the significance of these these systems and how they're interconnected. Maybe Jim, if you'd like to start. Sure. I would start by saying that my real education in the streets of inner city Detroit where I arrived in 1974, thinking I was on mission to help poor people in the city deal with their reality, which was a bit of white boy flatulence and arrogance. And it took (laughs) a long 15-year immersion in black inner city culture, uh, being schooled by black humor and black anger, and eventually having my eyes open to the amazing survival skills and creativity of ordinary inner city folk, using their cultural repertoire to survive an impossible situation. And most of what I know about life traces back to that process of initiation and rearrangement, which is ongoing. And it me to what happens with race in our culture, to the fact that we now live as the 500-year beneficiaries, people who look like me, of a kind of supremacy that has rearranged resources across the face of the globe, uh, largely in benefit of European heritage people at the expense of people of color. And certainly slavery, the the Atlantic slave trade is one version of that, but it's an ongoing um, operation of economic plunder, and it's now embedded in our institutions and in our cultural habituation, our 
unconscious biases and very ways of being and moving through reality to such a degree that I sometimes despair of being able to call it out, though I'm committed to working on that frontier in the little ways I can for as long as I have breath. Hmm. Uh, that white supremacy is itself, I think, the the offspring of Christian supremacy, and I speak hmm. here as somebody who has been deeply shaped by Christianity and teaches in an inner-city Christian seminary and still has one leg inside that tradition. And Christian supremacy itself, I think, channels a 5,000-year-old form of imperial species supremacy that began when we uh, launched our campaign to domesticate plants and animals and settled monocrop agriculture and began reinventing the entire biosphere and have been hard at work doing that ever since. So maybe that's our first statement. Yeah. Thank you, Jim, so much. I, you know, so much of what you're saying, like, resonates with Bio's work. And Bio, I wonder if you would like to speak to what Jim just talked about—the Christian supremacy and um, imperial species supremacy—and how this relates to what we're living out today. Thank you, uh, Rochelle. I, I just want to first say that I, I'm very thrilled to be in this conversation with um, James. Um, I have your book right now on my table. Huh? And it was, yeah, I'm holding it, I'm holding it right now in my hand. <laughs> it, was really, it was really helpful. Uh, I read about your experiences in inner Detroit, and it was helpful for me to uh, articulate my own thoughts and feelings, especially to juxtapose it with my experiences as a growing black man from Nigeria who had to learn blackness in the first place and um, who had to learn blackness in the midst of whiteness, you know, this, the totalizing form of whiteness that has enveloped um, Africa um, in the guise of development and progress and GDP and all of that. Um, yeah, so to, to speak to that uh, is, I would recall my own experiences as a growing up Christian and what I take into be normal or familiar, the idea that um, the West was on a scale of things, um, on a unilinear continuum of things, the West, white America, um, Europe was far ahead. And everyone, if you travel, if I don't know if James has ever been to Nigeria or in any part of Africa, have you? South Africa, three times. South Africa. Well, okay, good, good. Um, if you, so I think South Africa is a more benign <laughs> example. But if you go in, 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 you know, into the land itself, um, up north, if you press up north, I think it escalates this feeling that we have to catch up with Americans. And I learned that implicitly in how I was schooled, in the things that I learned to value. Um, I learned to speak with a foreign accent. It was this unreachable default of whiteness. I remember putting my, you know, with my family, putting our stockings outside in Christmas time, hoping that some white laughing Santa Claus would come and deposit gifts, you know. And we always, mourned our condition that we weren't 
you know, we didn't live in lands where snow fell. So it, it was just this unreachable quest for this abstract notion of whiteness that we were longing after. And somehow it, 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 it coincided, or this, these feelings of being left behind, of being inadequate, of being partial, of being diminished and invisible, were part of uh, our Christian upbringing. It was, no one articulated it like this in, you know, to us directly, but if only you read between the lines, it was clear that there was a teleological form of thinking, an argument that was made by thinking of the world in terms of dead matter, or thinking of people in terms of hierarchy, basically. Um, the idea that we had to catch up was already implied when pastors came to us and said we had to be saved and wore, wore suits, you know, to speak to their congregation. And, you know, suits wearing, you know, these blazers in, uh, in the sweltering heat was already a form of malaise, like we're totally divorced from our own grounds, like Okonkwa's feet. We had no um, relationship with where we were at that point in time. It wasn't sacred enough. We had to catch up with the West. And so, yes, it, 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 I, I, there, there are a lot of other things I'd like to say, but as an opening statement, I just wanted, wanted to share that space of deep, throbbing vulnerability of where I come from, from a land that is still struggling to find its own self, but is, is, has, you know, it has done so in the, in the middle of, uh, 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 you know, this loud argument that the only way to do that is in the midst of, uh, is on the premise of economic extractivism, is on the premise of development and progress and, progressivism, um, which sometimes dances into fascism. And the only way to think about ourselves is as a nation state. The only way to think ab about prosperity is to deny gift cultures altogether, is to deny the beautiful ways we've uh, configured our lives and then, you know, embrace, you know, uh, the white man and his quest for uh, monetary abstraction. So um, it's, it's like we're coming down to earth and I'm on a, I don't want to say personal journey, because even selfhood is queered in these conversations, I guess. Yeah, and, and jumping in to, to respond to all that you were putting on the table, which is remarkable stuff. Um, I'm married to a Filipina for the last, uh, what is it, 14 years, and hooked up with her for two other years in addition to that, and uh, she is also a person on this same journey and a professor, grew up in the Philippines, only came to the States in her late 30s, and I've been back to the Philippines with her on four separate occasions now, and it's the same kind of thing there. She grew up evangelized, um, son of a preacher's kid, singing Silent Night <laughs> in a tropical um, ecology and <laughs> snow and the same kind of uh, hegemony of ideas of development and so-called economic progress, uh, aspiring to upward mobility, the whole kit and 
with her, we've been on a, a journey out of that understanding, recognizing that it's destroying the planet and could well take our species off the planet before the centuries end if we don't radically change. Uh, so I would understand the kind of climate uh, alterations and upheaval that we're currently witnessing and experiencing as a form of speech, as the plants and animals, the waters, the, the mountains, the weather, the soils, the seasons speaking back to us. And I think in, in our modern formation, in our queered selves, as you put it, we've lost the capacity to to listen or even grasp that there's something there to be listened to. And for Lily and I, my wife and I, it's been a matter of turning to indigenous folk and indigenous cultures uh, all over the planet who still carry some memory and some sense of how to live sustainably in place by culturally and spiritually codifying their relations with um, all the the other communities of life that they share their little part of the planet with and to to be called in question by them in our hubris that we're making the planet better um, I think it's pretty clear that's that's fatuous uh, that there's a a deep task of recovery that we need to be about and learning from indigenous folk embraced as elders and behind them plants and animals and waters and the entire planet as a kind of elder. Um, how we develop an ear to hear, I think, is, is the big question of the hour. It seems as though, you know, as we, as you're speaking so beautifully to all of the this, is that um, that, that is an antidote in a way to how you know you speak to how even in our environmentalism we largely remain supremacist in our vision and in in our action and by turning towards an indigeneity or um you know just this more of a relationship of reciprocity that it's an antidote to this Supremacy. I'm just curious if that resonates with, you know, where we might move in, you know, like you're talking about radically change, radical change and beginning on a healing journey. Yeah, so you, you want me to respond or bio? Yeah, um, either. Bio, Jim, go ahead and then bio can respond. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, for, for me, it's been a matter of having learned so profoundly from inner-city African-American culture, taking the next step to ask at the strait, which is what Detroit means, Detroit in French, learning what's underneath white culture and black culture and Latina, Latinx culture here, which is the whole history of native dwelling and being in this place, uh, Ojibwe, Dawa, Potawatomi, Wendat Huron peoples, historically, who lived here um, with great vitality and enjoyed the abundance and particularly were hooked up with the sturgeon who frequented the river uh, in this part of the world. 
learning their stories, their practices, their memories, and learning from them because they're still around. They haven't been entirely disappeared in the colonial genocidal project towards native folk in this continent. And then for Lily, it's meant learning from indigenous folk back in the Philippines, particularly the Aita in, uh, up in Pampango, where she grew up. Um, and for me, digging back through my Indo-European heritage to fragments of indigeneity that are still there, the only living community would be the Sami north of the Arctic Circle in Norway and Sweden. But there are in musics and foods and folk tales bits and pieces of indigenous culture that, that I can go back and, and try to learn from as well. Bao, would you like to respond? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, I could listen to James elaborate on that even more. Um, it, the, uh, so I was, I was going to invoke the idea of, an, of, of a necropolis, which, or the necropolitical, uh, I think, which is an idea from Akhil Mbembe, he's a Cameroonian philosopher who created the concept of the necropolis. It's like these, uh, like the conditions that um, in time of war or strife or hunger, that assign death and life to subjects of a particular context. And um, I think some people are used, taking that concept and running off with it, you know, saying it's not just in time of war, it's, it's, it's in our time right now, the Anthropocene, where, um, you know, it's like the paleontology of the present, where uh, humans have done so much that we now live uh, we now have a layer, so to speak, on the earth that says we've been here, our own mark to say we've been here. So we're living in very troubling and troubled times. And I go this route to come around to the idea of responsivity or how we respond to it and, and to say that that's also a troubling thing. Like, to bring it home to my own circumstance, um, exploring my my indigeneity, I, I think I had this conversation earlier in a different episode, it saw me moving from some kind of naive postmodernism that I could find my blackness somewhere in the ether, you know, all I needed to do was, all I needed to do was to look for it. Um, and now where I'm at is a beautiful entangled notion of looking at the world and that led me out of my career or led me out of the university context brought me all the way to India to kind of situate myself in community and gift culture so I think uh, what, what I'm doing in response to a planet that is damaged and ethically challenged already is to is to bury my feet in soil, is to learn how to plant my own food, is to question the, um, you know, the regularity or the default of schooling and, and to raise questions, to press my ear to the ground is what my elders would say. And to, to let me use another phrase that 
that may probably comes to mind is divine violence, to hack history, the continuum of history, and to see time itself as a thick now, to live in the present. Um, what does it mean to be here, to be present with my family, with others? What does it mean to be um, indigenous to the soil where I am and to know place as place knows me? Um, these are the questions that beat and throb in my veins today. It's beautiful. It is time to take a short break. And before we go, allow me to share another quote by our guest today, Dr. James Perkinson. At the most literal level, we are temporary realizations inside human skin of all kinds of iterations of other creatures, floral, faunal, mineral, pluvial, alluvial, microbial, and atmospheric, whose gift to us of their own bodies is not other than ourselves, but the very sum and substance of who we are. We just live a lie when it comes to actually honoring where we came from. It gives a deeply radical twist to the typical Christian insistence, very rarely lived out on giving up one's life for one's friends. Are we big enough to live on behalf of other species and give our breath and flesh for them as they do all the time for us? Why do we draw a line around our bodies as the vaunted parameters of human identity when in fact we actually live and through, live in and through all kinds of other bodies every millisecond, beholden for, for instance to the hundreds of bacterial species and billions of cells vastly outnumbering our own non-bacterial cells to such a degree that we are minorities in our own bodies, not to mention all the soil bodies, the air bodies, the water bodies, and the fish and chip bodies, and microbrew beer bodies, and the on-the-run chicken McNugget bodies that become us just as surely as we are regularly defecate and become someone else's body. These are the words of Dr. James Perkinson, and you can buy his books on Amazon, and you can reach Dr. Perkinson at jperkinson at etseminary.edu. And you can find a link to his Radical Discipleship essay on the radio page of our website, experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. In addition, you can learn more <coughs> excuse me, about BioEcomolafe's upcoming courses at bioecomolafe.net. And be sure to pre-order Bio's extraordinary book on Amazon called These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanities, Search for Home. This is a book that is tackling some of the world's most profound questions through the intimate lens of fatherhood in a narrative that manages to be both intricate and unguarded. Bio discovers that something as commonplace as becoming a father is a cosmic event of unprecedented proportions. Using this realization as a touchstone, he is led to consider the strangeness of his own soul, contemplate the myths and rituals of modernity, ask questions about food injustice, ponder what it means to be human, evaluate what we can do about climate change, and wonder what our collective yearnings for a better world tells us about ourselves. These Wilds Beyond Our Fences is a passionate attempt to make sense of our disconnection in a world where it is easy to feel untethered and lost. It's a father's search for meaning, for a place for of belonging, and for reassurance that the world will embrace and support our children once we are gone. And we will be right back with Dr. James Perkinson and Dr. Bio Okomalafe. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head-on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back, everyone. The need from the point of view of many indigenous is not progress, but remembering and returning. As a species, we have long known how to live in relatively sustainable symbiosis with local ecologies and how to tell stories and practice ceremonies that keep the community woke and alive to the necessity of respectful conversation with the non-human world. Many such indigenous cultures tell myths of origin that identify their deepest ancestry as not human, but rather arising from the plant or animal who has most allowed them to survive as human communities in such local ecologies. If Mayan, they were originally corn. If Inuit, whales. If Ojibwa, sturgeon, Mongol, wolves, ancient German, boars or bears. We as moderns hear such claims as charming conceits. These are the words of Dr. James Perkinson from his September 2017 essay in the online Radical Discipleship Journal. 
So welcome back, Bio and James. James or Jim, excuse me. I wonder if you would mind speaking to um, how we can maybe it's a trap of using privilege to um, try to remove ourselves from you know the cities and and industry i'm wondering how can we do this even just within just where we are like bio was talking about um you know challenging ourselves to be present to where we are and to no place as it is and um i'm just wondering if you can speak to to this yeah and I might preface it by citing an example of an indigenous community uh, today that is dealing with the kinds of climate change crises we're facing. Uh, there are a number that I'm aware of, but I think of a friend of mine who was recently up um, in Alaska where they were experiencing a wildfire and the people there told him that it was not a calamity, it was not a disaster that in fact it was a part of nature's vitality, that if the fires didn't come, the seeds didn't germinate, the willow didn't grow, the moose didn't feed, and human beings didn't survive. And that they had learned from their ecology not to build their homes in places vulnerable to wildfire, but out in marshlands and and wet areas where they were buffered and they could simply recognize fire as one of the creatures that is part of the, the amazing web of reciprocity that makes up life. I think we need to learn from indigenous cultures ways of telling stories about that to keep the community, the human community, rooted and anchored in its ongoing involvement with other life forms and its descent from them. How to do some of that in the city, I think, begins with the question of food. You know, at the, at the most literal level, we come from corn or from fish or from meat, uh, from all kinds of plants uh, that we consume. They become our body. Uh, we aren't separate from them. We aren't simply mythically coming from them. We're literally living through their gift to us and we will go back to being them when we die and our bodies come apart and are metabolized back into wild nature. In the city, uh, in Detroit, there are a number of folk, in, particularly in the black community, former Black Panthers, in fact, in both the east and west sides of the city, who are doing serious community urban gardening um, as a response to the epidemic of obesity, the, the fact that Detroit is a food desert, uh, there are almost no outlets for fresh produce. People are forced to live from gas stations, live from a high, highly sugared, highly salted uh, choice of foodstuffs with the resulting uh, disaster for their health. And so returning to, to learn to grow food in the city, Detroit's 139 square miles and 30% vacant. You can put all of Boston or all of San Francisco in the vacant land in Detroit. There is a reclaiming of the city by wild nature. And the question for many of us working at a grassroots level, taking that term almost literally, is how to cooperate with that. Not to see that as the, the powers that be do as blight that has to be developed 
but rather as a, an invitation to recover a relationship with native species. So in addition to growing the kinds of foods we're used to eating, it means doing research on the, the floodplain of the river here and learn what species were growing and do grow naturally and begin to try to recover relationship with them. A particular thing I've been involved with uh, in the last four years um, is the water struggle here. Detroit is a city where passes 20% of the Earth's fresh surface water uh, every day in a century that's already fast becoming the century of water wars. And it's very clear that the corporate class and political class of this country are not going to let Detroit continue to be run by African-Americans. It's an 82% African-American city that is being retaken by the powers that be uh, for its infrastructure, but also for its strategic location right next to water. And we had an emergency manager imposed by the state governor back in 2013, as did many other majority-minority Michigan cities, who was invested with virtual dictatorial powers to uh, begin privatizing city assets all over the state in the name of finance capital and neoliberal interests, and has been doing so. And under that emergency manager, households in Detroit began to experience water shutoffs uh, to the tune of 100,000 residences in the last four years, anybody $150 or two months in arrears, whereas the corporate sector, who the Joe Lewis Arena for the Detroit Red Wings, the the Ford Field, where the Lions play, uh, Palmer Park Golf Course, the state of Michigan itself, were tens of thousands, and in one case, hundreds of thousands of dollars in arrears, but did not have their water shut off. Um, what to do about that? So a number of us, led by nine older African-American women and younger hip-hop heads, began to push back, do demonstrations, write articles, um, and ultimately engage in nonviolent civil disobedience to block shutoff trucks. As part of our response to this privatizing of water, um, and it's plunged a number of us into having to then recover relationship to the waters as a spiritual creature. So listening to Ojibwa women who have been doing water walks around the Great Lakes Basin in recent years, or, and this is the final thing I'll say, an Ojibwe-inspired water walk from the headwaters of the Potomac up in the mountains in West Virginia, carrying a pail of water 402 miles down to where that river uh, enters into the Chesapeake Bay, polluted and full of uh, effluent. And the women on that walk asked if they're trying to raise consciousness about environmental devastation will say, sure, but that's a white male Western way of thinking about it. Primarily what we're doing is we're talking to the water. We're taking this pail of water, which we've orphaned from the headwaters, down to give it back to her so she can have a taste of herself and remember how she was when she came fresh out of the springs in the mountains. And I think that kind of recovery is crucial for the kind of politics of water that I just described, which we're all going to be involved in with increasing um, draconian struggles, I think, in the short term. Mm. Wow. It's such a powerful uh, example 
about if you're open, just responding. I know you have so much to say. <laughs> no, I have much more to listen to um, yeah. with James here. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I think J- James is pointing out something I think cri- critical that it's it's sometimes hard to miss, but I think it, it would pay us. It would do us good to kind of remember or to come to us as if for the first time. So there is some kind of sea change that is blown across disciplines and um, from biology to quantum physics and even to sociology. Um, I could recommend a book called Ghostly Matters by Avery Gordon. Um, asking us to rethink the way we think about those reforms that are being taken, that we emphasize this reciprocity, this um, transcorporeality, if you will, that our bodies are not as independent as um, our modern configurations would have us believe they are. They are not independent, they're not cut off. Uh, I think Bruno Latour would say, we've never been modern, we're still quite we're still quite entangled with the ground, such uh, so uh, so much that uh, I think it was Donna Haraway's husband, um, Hodgson, that that said, you know, we should stop talking about the humanities. It's it ought to be the humosities, if you will. Um, so we're of Earth. We're not on Earth. We're not in Earth. We we're not in a container. We are what the world is doing. So these interactive relationships. Uh, this idea that we live in the orbit of others, uh, that that there is no becoming, that is not a becoming with a poetic dance or a murmuration with each other, is 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 this sea change that is blowing and is reconfiguring our landscape. And it's really, you know, ironically, it's taking the patriarchal sciences and, and turning them on their head so that they're beginning to notice what, um, at the risk of totalizing that concept or romanticizing it, what indigenous people have always been talking about, that the world is alive. Um, <clears throat> there's this fishing community in Brazil. I can't recall the name right now, but it's a beautiful example of that reciprocity we're speaking about and and how this conversation will where's the idea that we're in control or that the soul uh, the Calvinian soul is the ghost in the machine is, you know, somewhere within us or that agency or any of those properties that we think of as human are actually ours to begin with. So this community um, of fishermen and fisherwomen would would gather by the a river. And on the other side of the river is an industrial fishing um, um, town, I think. And they have the boats, they have all the works, they have the machines to process and all of that. On the other side is this community I'm speaking about. Now, what they do is um, quite astounding and it was actually featured in a documentary. I still can't recall what that is or where that is right now. Um, The men go into the water and they stand still. There is literally a waiting period. And if you were to breeze past in your car and see these people like, like phantoms, just standing knee-deep in the water. You think there's some kind of elaborate voodoo thing going on, but they're waiting for something. 
And if you didn't wait with them, you think they're just doing rubbish. But minutes into the wait, um, dolphins would emerge as, as it is done over time. They would emerge and they would come springing to the banks of the river. And in their wakes would be fish. That the dolphins are somehow participating with the fishermen and they've developed this partnership over time, you know, to actually fish with the fishermen, if you will. So that even to call this fishermen fishermen is to be rude, so to speak, because the fishing apparatus involves the dolphins as well, if you will, and it's not the men over here. So it, the story is much more exciting than how I've told it, but I think the point to be made here is that really we there there is no agentic solitude here, and listening to the planet, listening to trees, um, I, let me put it this way, what would be of economics or politics if we took advice from our trees, if we um, thought of our brooks and rivers and rocks not as resources to get out of the way for our um, Apollonian quest for supremacy. Uh, what, what would happen if we settled with these earth critters, these sacred others, and thought of them as partners in emergence? and that they have a say in what we do. You know, the whole idea that man invented technology, for instance, is this part of this human exceptionalism, this hubris that we pass on generation after generation. And I think we're beginning to recognize that we, there, there, is no, there is no static or fixed independence. Technology invents us as much as we are shaped by it, uh, as much as we shape it. And so there's this interactive, beautiful, and sometimes tragic, uh, poetry, murmuration that is going on, that almost always involves displacement, that always involves um, location. It's just like the quantum experiments that show that sometimes when you um, measure uh, a, partic a particle, you exclude the possibility of measuring a wave. Or if you measure a wave, you exclude the possibility of measuring a particle. All of these, you know, seem the disparate or disconnected, but they're all pointing to a beautiful new narrative. And I don't want to make it out to be a new slogan or a new thing, but it's the sea change that we are deeply connected. Uh, without disparaging the new age communities and traditions, um, um, I want to say that this is not new, new agey stuff. This is grounded in sciences. This has been grounded in our communities, in our mythologies, in how we think about the world, how we think about creation for a long time. And we're coming home to that in beautiful ways. Thank you both so much. It's so beautiful what you say. It, it uh, kind of brings me back actually to the top of the show where I was talking about there are allies here. Uh, and that's something that feels, you know, very... Um, I don't know if the word's nourishing, but empowering. It's um, comforting, actually, to know that, you know, not just you and I as allies, but that nature and all of its beings, non, you know, it's human and non-human, that, that, um, that all of these beings are our allies in, in this troubling, troubled, haunting time. And... Um, and I was, I'm curious, Jim, if you could speak to 
maybe rituals or practices that can help us anchor ourselves. Uh, like Bio says, press our ear to the ground or dig our feet into the soil or um, connect with the grassroots of our present moment. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Well, yeah, that's a that's a deep uh, topic that I feel very much uh, a novice and even not even a novice in trying to to respond to because I think uh, for the indigenous cultures that I'm aware of, ritual and ceremony is at the heart of their relationship with um, and interaction with <clears throat> the the other life communities that they. Uh, live with, and <laughs> I don't think those rituals can just be invented afresh, mm-hmm. um, nor can we just take them up from indigenous cultures as one more operation of plunder. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. what to do in the mix, um, mm-hmm. I'm struggling to learn that. A couple things my wife and I are doing, uh, one is going and spending uh, 10 days twice per year with a half-native, half-white guy named Martin Prechtel down in northern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Was himself schooled by the Pueblo Indians there, his own people, and about a decade with Sutuhio Mayan folk up in the highlands in Guatemala, um, and who's a remarkable teacher about indigenous cultures worldwide and is helping those of us who are white Euro heritage folk do the kind of thing I was talking about earlier, crawl back through our history to find bits and pieces of ritual and ceremony that are still there, particularly musics and food traditions. Um, And part of what we have done, um, being taught by him, is to make micaceous clay from the earth, top of the mountains in northern New Mexico, um, seed bowls and every meal we offer a little bit to our ancestral line um, before we eat which is a way of remembering our ancestry and it is then offered to wild nature because that also is part of our ancestry my wife along with her sister uh, Lenny Strobel out your way uh, has been making use of a book called uh, Ethno Autobiography uh, developed by Jurgen Kramer and a colleague of his to develop a whole series of rituals based on those particularly Indo-European um, but worldwide traditions of ceremony. Um, and she's using it to teach her multiculturalism classes in a you know, majority white university just outside Detroit where she regularly teaches with real success in breaking open modern young people to what they have lost in this Faustian bargain with whiteness uh, to begin to recover some of their connection with the earth um, and and with their ancestry. And there's a whole series of, of ritual activities that are offered there. Um, I don't want to just keep rattling. I, I want to hear what Bio would also say about this, uh, given that we're against the time right here. Yes, Bio, please respond. 
right, right. Um, yeah, I, I share the sentiments of, you know, James, the nervousness around this. Like, <laughs> it, it's, I also share that as well. The, it, there's, there's a burden here to produce solutions. And this is what I was trying to get around with my, with speaking about responsiveness or responsivity and how it seems we tend to repeat in the name of innovating or charting new paths, we tend to repeat the familiar and so that even in a search for solutions, we're only making the problem more intelligent and giving it and giving it a, a deeper awareness, if you will. Uh, but I would, I would say that um, it, this is how I respond to it, basically, that let us begin in the middle. Um, uh, I've known a couple of people who are anxious. There's this um, installed anxiety about repeating, um, uh, about repeating white privilege in, or, or co-opting another culture's traditions. And those are deeply, those are appreciated. Um, we, we don't want to repeat the familiar. We don't want to repeat these colonial attitudes, right? We want to chart um, new courses and learn to live well with each other. But at the same time, we don't want to be um, imprisoned in our anxiety that we, we, we don't move or make moves at all. Or we assume that the best moves to be made are moves, are moves that are pure. So if a ritual is not, is, not, it is not new entirely, if it has a hint of a different culture in it, let's throw it in the garbage and look for something entirely unmediated. And I think, and I think that's a repeat of whiteness. Like uh, we should banish our oracles and our notions of purity and settle in the messiness uh, in, in the idea that we spill into the other and the other spills into us. And I would also say very quickly that this is a time for looking for ghosts. Um, this is a time for unearthing the spectral that is already riddled, uh, that already riddles uh, um, and disturbs and troubles our so-called uncontroversial grounds. This is a time for listening to them Basically, uh, it was this lady, Zoro Hurst, Zora Hurston, in her book, The Sanctified Church. I think she wrote, Ghosts Hate New Things. And modernism, or modernity, is the idea of installing new after new after new in layers, sedimenting and moving in some progressive notion of, the, of history. What we need to do is to go back to the debris of history and plant our feet right there in the messiness build sanctuaries, learn to speak with one another, and stuff like that. I don't want to take too much time. <laughs> There's a lot to speak about. Okay. It's, yeah. 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 Rochelle. Yes, thank you both so much. It's really just a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate your being here. Our guest today has been Dr. James W. Perkinson. Dr. Perkinson is particularly concerned with understanding the way white supremacy as an effect of colonial Christian practices continues to be reproduced in mainstream Western cultures. In addition, he explores how the creative forms of cultural resistance developed by marginalized groups and indigenous peoples can critically challenge Christianity today, becoming, at least by cultural and communication skills and polyrhythmic and spiritual practices, fast emerging 
emerging as a requisite capacity for Christian leadership in a transnational world. And the need for a pedagogy adequate to to such a demand is Dr. Perkinson's consuming passion. And you can get in touch with Jim at jperkinson at etseminary.edu. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today for this powerful conversation. Thank you for your ongoing work and your razor-sharp clarity in helping us articulate and express the madness that we're living out in this modern Western conditions. But thank you also for pointing us in the direction of authentic wisdom traditions so that we might begin to make meaningful and monumental shifts that disrupt the status quo. It's such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And boy, I this idea of getting into the question of ghosts and debris, and I would say compost, uh, mm. about mm. a conversation that maybe we could complete in the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> compost, <wonderful>. yes, yes. <laughs> And Bio, what an extraordinary gift of my life it is to know you, to have you, to have had you here with me over the course of this radio show journey and to be so lovingly guided by you. Your course, We Will Dance with Mountains, has been profoundly moving and I'm so inspired that all those people whose lives you so deeply touch will bring that care into the world in ways we may never be able to fully grasp. Thank you so much. Ashe, Ashe. Thank you so much, Rochelle. And to all of our dear listeners, tune in next week for a conversation with the author author of New Self, New World, Philip Shepard, about his beautiful new book called Radical Wholeness, The Embodied Present and the Ordinary Grace of Being. It's such a pleasure to be here with you all on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Be sure to log on to revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and you can connect with Bio Okomolafe's inspiring essay in our latest issue. Thank you so much for being here with us on this journey. Until next time, I'm Rochelle McLaughlin. May you be well and may we all be well thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing to greater degrees of compassion and to pathways to health for our world with revolutionary wellness talk radio join us next thursday at 2 p.m pacific 5 p.m eastern time to expand your perspective deepen your attention and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel.